Salam Ajamiyoy Aziz. Hello. Welcome to the Ajam podcast. Uh, we're your hosts here, Kamyar and Rustin. Hey everybody. Wow, that energy is great, Rustin. Don't be too don't be too shy about your voice here. <laughs> no. Hey everybody. There we go. Salam <laughs> back Okay. So what is the Ajam podcast? Rustin, can you can you explain this for us? Sure. Um, so, you know, if you've been following us for enough time, you know that we've experimented with some interviewed formats. We've done some emerging scholarship podcasts in the past. But now that we've kind of uh, moved forward and been successful with the Kickstarter, we decided we want to give you guys a little bit more of a uh, regular um, show, I guess. So I guess for what we're... our, our purpose here is to kind of fill you up on, you know, Ajam updates, but also kind of talk about some current events, some articles that we've been reading, and just kind of uh, bring in some of the more Ajam content you love, like um, interviews with uh, academics, scholars, journalists, maybe a discussion of music. So, yeah. yeah, you know, just overall good stuff. Yeah, all that. It's, it's like Ajam, but for your ears, <laughs> Which, but also, I guess, more regularly and easily downloadable. Because we had the interviews before, right? And maybe we'll actually re- reuse some of those so people can hear like the best five minutes of each one. But um, we've only now learned, I think, the power of the podcast and being in the iTunes store and stuff. Yeah, we're a little let- late to the game, I guess. But I know, yeah. It is what it is. Yeah, like the Iranian uncle who like just got Instagram last week, you know? <laughs> maybe like my mom or something. Goes through and likes all of your photos <laughs> for the last 70 years. <laughs> months uh okay, okay. so so do you want to come here do you want to talk a little bit about uh the kickstarter yeah yeah I mean, that was that's kind of been the biggest um news that we've had for the last couple months okay so first thank you again to everyone who supported our kickstarter you were all amazing you are all amazing um hitting our goal meant so much to us it's gonna let us do this for a while at a bigger scale uh, big picture, you know, as everyone knows, Adjam was run basically on a volunteer service for the first few years. No one was compensated for anything, everything out of pocket. You know, when we raised money through the Kickstarter, the goal was to start paying people for their work and, you know, hopefully getting better quality content and people having more time to contribute and more serious writers and journalists involved, while, you know, still kind of keeping kind of the project in in its scope. So what's awesome is we raised the money and we took the summer to basically plan out how we're going to keep this thing running and uh, also get you your perks, which I'll get to. But I think one of the biggest lessons we learned is that, you know, this is still going to be, you know, a project kind of for the community. So we're not going to explode and get big and, you know, try to grow too fast and burn the money. But that being said, you know, it's been taking us a little bit of time to get all our admin and stuff together to start paying people and all that. But we're getting there. You know, we set out some of our first payments for some of the most recent content you've seen. 
We've got some more articles coming back up in the schedule now that we're kind of getting back in the groove. And, um, you know, as we do and make more decisions about like what iGEM is going to be, you know, we're going to share with all the readers and listeners so they kind of feel like they understand who we are, what we're doing. But the good news is we don't have to ask for money for a long time. So we'll see what's up with that. As far as the perks, uh, as I am the last iGEM editor in New York, last man standing. <laughs> Uh, I'm mailing those out as, as fast as I can. The, the bags went out, domestic bags, international bag. I'm trying to figure out how to do that on the cheap. Um, the posters, you know, they're getting rolled. They're getting sent out. Um, I'm hoping within a week or two we're all done with that. So um, we'll send out some, some information, reminders about that. And when it's all done, if someone didn't get stuff, then we're going to reach out to you and hook you up with something. If something's lost in the mail or whatever, we'll figure it out. Uh, yeah, man, I think that's it. I, we just got to get some, some more articles up for these people. Yeah, yeah. I think now, it's, um, now that we have some uh, financial encouragement, I think we'll start to see more regular content. And now that our administration... On uh, on our side is getting uh, straightened out. Yeah, getting. I expect there. fall to be fall and winter will be kind of uh, a gem resurgence. Yeah, we so. took the summer off, the summer vacation, <laughs> like, like a good academic. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, Kamiar, what do we, what do we got today? What are we what are we discussing? So, I I want to discuss this um, this article that I saw about. I mean, I don't even know how to describe the the crux of the article. I guess, okay, so the, it's titled, it's this on Aeon, some people might have seen it, uh, Forging Islamic Science, and it's by Nir Shafir, um, he's at UCSD, does um, History of the Ottoman Empire, and it's basically just sort of his musings about um, running into all these fake Islamic manuscripts in Turkey that are supposed to be showing science and medical science and stuff like that. And he's sort of just trying to unpack and understand why there's all these fake manuscripts and what they sort of say about, um, I guess, our view of the Islamic world and our view of history and stuff like that. Why is this interesting to me? Because I've seen these fake things myself in Turkey, and I was always kind of confused as to what the deal was. I don't know, Rasid. I don't Me think you've read any of this stuff, but I'm I have that. actually. Um, I just want to point out for those of you guys who think that the name Nir Shafir sounds familiar, um, he is the editor in chief of Ottoman History Podcast, along with Chris Grayton, who are um, some of our good friends over there who have um, who's helped us out in the past. So just a shout out to them. But yeah, I mean, this is something that I've definitely seen, and in fact, I have been a victim of when I was much younger. <laughs> So this, this hits home, uh, very much home to my bright-eyed um, undergraduate days before I could really um, kind of parse out um, uh, what is a forgery and not. But yeah, I think it was 2010, 2009, my first time to Istanbul. I uh, went to the Grand Bazaar, just like Nier uh, mentions in the article. Um, bought a couple of these manuscripts showing kind of feats of Pahlavani or some like uh, strongman types of heroic feats. Um, and it wasn't until I actually started taking, uh, you know, uh, pre-modern Persian a little bit more seriously that I, I actually turned over the paper and started to read the pages. And they had absolutely nothing to do with the images. And in fact, they were um, reproduced um, 
on all the uh, on the two on the two manuscripts that uh, the two folios that I bought. It was the same text. So um, that's basically it. Was a year or two later when I found out that uh, these were for forgeries. And it kind of, you know, uh, it's oh, a little embarrassing. <laughs> There's like a whole generation of us that that we got got by this just because we didn't pay enough attention in our uh, Ottoman classes or whatever. <laughs> I, but I mean, I the same thing. What, I this this one that he shows in the article actually of the mm -hmm. fake, um, like I don't know what it's supposed to be, like an anatomical model showing someone's veins and stuff. Yeah, I've the seen circulatory this one too, system. And I was like. Did, is, I was like, is my Ottoman just not good anymore? Because I haven't like practiced in a while. Like, oh, I guess I just don't remember all these words. But no, it's just fake, you know. But I thought it was interesting because it's a good question of like why people would do this, you know. And ultimately in the article, you know, he goes into this sort of pressure we put on, on Islamic, you know, science and medical history to kind of compete with Western sciences which I think is something that's really understandable, right? I mean, as like a response to to sort of the Orientalist gaze, kind of making it seem like, you know, quote-unquote, Eastern history doesn't exist. I mean, definitely I felt it as a kid where I was like, you know, you know I'm from Iran. I'm sure we had scientists, you know. <laughs> I'm sure we had like, you know, we didn't have Pasteur. We must have had like Pastor or something. You know, I mean that's before you find out. Uh, Ava, well, unless your parents keep telling you that you know Ibn Sina is Avicenna, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. The, the one the history I, bit. <laughs> but you know, um, I actually found Nier's point about this very fascinating. This this element of you know trying to kind of um, uh, kind of show the contributions of this larger. Uh, world and using the term, let's say, uh, Islamic sciences. And this is something that, like, you know, people um, uh, have debated about this usage for a long time. Like, right, it's very much um, uh, tied to our own ideas of, um, you know, uh, our contemporary experiences, living in a post 9 11 world and the war on terror, this and that. Um, Tell but, me you about know, it. <laughs> like, for example, he says that, like, why are we, uh, I would have titled my course um, Ara uh, Arabic science or Arab science. Um, and this raises an interesting point for me because, you know, I, I'm, right now I'm writing my first uh, chapter of my dissertation. I'm looking at, Ooh. you know, geography, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, what, what, what would you call, let's say, a Persian or let's say someone from Balkh? writing in Baghdad in Arabic, like, is that uh, Arabic geography? Is it an Arab geography? Is it Persian geography? Um, what else if this person is um, um, a, a Jew from Andalusia? Like, is that something that we would then fit into this larger uh, Islamic category? If you or ask a, a Persian nationalist, they'll say they were just confused. <laughs> <laughs> No, but yeah, you're right. It, it complicates these questions of how to label stuff. And then there's, I mean, you can't escape the most pressing, I think, in some ways, pressure people feel is from this current geopolitics and how that makes them feel and, and affects their lives. Because it's, you know, it's, it's exactly as it. complicated. It doesn't really sit well with our narratives. You know, like, um, oh, yeah. Okay, so you, Rustin, you know, listeners don't know. My last name is Jarozade, right? Son of Surgeon. So, 
you know, when I was a kid, my dad used to always tell these stories about basically his grandfather was like the last in this line of Islamic surgeons in Iran, where we're from. And he would always say, that's why I should go to med school. But the, you know, the, the more complicated fact under that, which would have revealed a little bit more, is that, you know, they practiced Islamic and local sort of like Iranian uh, medicine, which was different from the doctors that would come out of Darul Funun, which was like the first medical school in Iran. Mm -hmm. So actually, they were banned from their practice at the end and replaced by other doctors. So if my dad was to really be encouraging me, he would say, go learn this sort of like local Khuzestani medicine, because that's your bloodline, <laughs> you know. But wow. that's, you know, that's one of these, that just shows how complicated, especially in the 19th century, you know, this history was where you see these kind of alternative forms of, of medicine having to clash with sort of the Western sensibility of medical science. And then you can't really make this clean, nice narrative about like science from A to B and then there's the Islamic one versus sort of this kind of Western one. It's more complicated than that, you know. So it kind of, For you know, sure. it understands. You can't really resolve it that neatly by saying that they have their science and we have ours and then that's it, you know. I mean, can, especially when you consider, you know, how um, how texts move for, for so many hundreds of years, right? When we think about the foundational works of science and naturalism and geography, I mean, uh, you know, there's the very real um, uh, history and genealogy of tracing this, this movement of, you know, Greek to Arabic back to Latin that we kind of have this... Um, to, to tell a history of science without any of these sorts of shortcuts and uh, you know geographic um, detours is would be would be uh, you know not not a complete picture at all. No, so. no, no, totally harder to suss. But yeah, it's a good article. Everyone go read it. Um, Check it out. And basically, anything near does. I mean, just Agreed. go go read and listen. Okay. Uh, Kamiar, you've been, you've been talking about um, family history, heritage, genealogy, transmission. Uh, I heard you, you, you got some news. Like, uh, well, didn't well, you, we uh, both got some news. Well, I'll start with mine first. As everyone knows, sure. I, who knows me personally, I've been talking about this for a while. I did my genetic test. And I know I read all the articles, how it's problematic, and, you know, I know the history of scientific racism, blah, blah, but I wanted to do it. I was super curious. Um, since I was a kid, my dad, you know, we're from the south of Iran, you know, from Desful, and my dad was like, you know, who knows what our history was? Like, some of us have blue eyes, you know, my dad included. I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> they are doing a sale, 23andMe, I went and did it. Um, so, yeah, my father's side of the family is from Deshul, my mother's side from Ahvaz, they're both in the south of Iran, Khuzestan, well, okay, see what happens. As expected, 23andMe, totally boring. It just said, like, 97% like Middle Eastern. I mean, you look at me, I, you know, that's obvious already, you know. Um, why is that? Basically, what this all comes down to, and there's more to this story, by the way, um, is that it's just about this, uh, the, the samples they use. And they can only pull their samples from people that they claim can somehow prove four generations of ancestry in the same place. 
And then on top of that, you know, this company decides to use these giant sort of geographic ranges to denote different regions. So at least how they present the data, who knows what they have sort of behind the scenes, but they just sort of lump it all together as Middle East uh, versus I guess they have like a sort of Arab North Africa distinction nearby. Uh, really not that helpful, you know. Um, if you think of like the mix of people and how they're only using very slight and small sort of variations in your DNA to track it, it's not that great. So I was like, okay, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so like when I was thinking, because I also did this, right? Um, uh, just to kind of, it's actually after a conversation with you that I was like, you know, this is this is pretty interesting, just because um, my family history has always always been kind of. Uh, a bit of a mystery, right? So every time, you know, as you get older, your parents start to tell you more things and you start mm -hmm. to um, look at, you know, uh, you know, oh, we're from Iran. Oh, wait, hold on. Actually, like, we're Azari, like, uh, from Tabriz. But wait a minute, our grandparents were actually from Baku and then, well, some of them were in Turkmenistan, some are from Afghanistan, right? So, like, um, I was just curious to see how this would, um, how this would turn up on the on this 23andMe, right? Mm -hmm. um, and basically, like you, mine was 97% uh, Iranian. Um, uh, actually, now I think they did an update where they, they kind of pinpoint the country that they think you're from. So, like, mine is, like, 96.7% uh, Iranian. But um, with, like, one ancestor from South Asia in 1850s, which I get my, my grandfather, my, my grandfather's grandfather was from Herat, so I think the, just based on the way they um, they lump some of that data, um, Herat, even though it's only a hundred or so kilometers yeah. away from Ashad, then is in a different yeah, pool. Yeah, it could be a different pool, but it could even just be noise in the statistics because I got That's like true. a little bit of South Asian on their thing. It's so hard to say, but there was so you know this wasn't all a waste of money. Um, I also did my dad's as well, by the way, and actually it was interesting was he got a little bit more of the African ancestry, just a touch more. But anyways, there was there was some hope at the end of the tunnel for Rasin and I, because there's this other project. I think it's through Columbia University, right? I think they're sponsors. They're sponsors. Um, Maybe it's one I don't of know if it's run okay. through it, but yeah. It's called DNA Land. Um, yeah, it's affiliated with Columbia New York Genome Center. And what these people have up on 23andMe is a disaggregated data set that focuses more on ethnic identity. So, again, let me preface this all by saying the idea of genes equaling ethnicity, race, is crazy problematic, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is something that we should actually spend some time talking about because even 23andMe has this um, statement as well, right, which is the way they're proving ancestry is they actually go to someone who has written documents oh, um, stating point. that a grandparents are from um, let's say the grandparents or their great-grandparents have this birth certificate that they're born in this particular uh, town or village or city mm -hmm. so birthplace is then kind of correlated with ethnicity when we all know that you know people have been moving around for hundreds of years that um, you know that is not necessarily that simple as to saying that if you were born here, then therefore you are ethnically one thing or another. Mm -hmm. And also this idea that ethnicity, as you mentioned, um, is going to be um, tied into your, your genetic breakdown, which is, which is not the case, actually. Yeah. So. You know, actually, that's, that speaks to one thing, that only good thing that came out of my 23andMe test was I, I met someone who, according to 23andMe, is like a third or fourth cousin 
mm-hmm. or actually, sorry, third, one of my closer people who I did see some people there who I do know in real life. But the first person I saw was kind of closely related, but I didn't know. I wrote them a message and I just said, you know, do you, I'm curious about my ancestry. Do you know anything? And I remember the only thing my dad ever told me that could place us anywhere outside of that town we're from, Desful, because he thinks that we're just all been born there, at least as far back as he knows his great-grandparents. He said, oh, one time my uh, dad told me a story about this Turkic tribe, the Kabile Gunduzlu, and I don't know if it was a bedtime story or a family history. Okay, I messaged this person, and they write, well, in our family history... We're originally from Khorasan, and then with this Gunduzlu tribe, we somehow were moved to the western frontier of Iran. So I'm like, okay. So either this was some... Again, you don't really know. It could just be an apocryphal story spreading through the town. It could be something. But at the very least, it sparked this thing in my brain that was like, you know, whenever I would go to Desful and see these like ancient water mills or things from like the 15th or 14th century people would be like, this is ours, you know, we should be so proud of this. But it's also very likely most of us weren't there when these things were being built. Or our ancestors, obviously, you know, weren't there. Maybe we were somewhere else a thousand years ago and we just showed up and moved to this place and then now we're claiming this geography and this place and building ethnicity around it. Well, I mean, that's not the first time that's happened in history either. I mean, like, think about, like, uh, you know, monumental propaganda from every Iranian empire that's ever existed, right? So, like... (laughs) So, the limits are huge in this thing. And I think what showed it even more was that we, Rustin and I then resubmitted our data to DNA Land that has this, like, ethnic database. And... I mean, I don't even know how, I'm kind of more like, how do I even interpret all this stuff, right? Yeah. I went from being just Middle Eastern to now I'm half Central Indo-European, which they define as basically what, like the Caucasus, but also... I think it's like Caucasus, Iran, like all the way up to... Caucasus, Iran, and Turkey, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then... There's also a broad range of, you know, people and places and things right so yeah it doesn't really what does that even say you know <laughs> and then i got indo-iranian <coughs> indus valley and then mediterranean islands but then you can also see who their sample is and you know for example for like this this uh i think indus valley it says like a random sindhi person in pakistan somehow matched my sample you know so i mean at first i thought this was kind of interesting to sort of say like you know, oh, look, you know, the Mediterranean-Southern-Iranian connection or something. But, you know, as as a, a friend of mine said, the most interesting stuff happened so long ago, we could never even build a sample size off of it that would give us some clarity into what happened. You know... For sure. Uh, what happened in the 15th century, the 14th century? You know, I think a lot of people get these tests back and they get 97% Middle Eastern and they go, well, I'm pure Middle Eastern. You know, it's as real as it gets. But because you're always chasing that thing that you can't find, which is some, you know, actually sort of historical sense of what builds these weird correlations. I mean, I don't even know. Is it even meaningful or helpful? I mean, these are all very good questions. I mean, one of the things that I found interesting about um, taking my tests was that they seem to be completely contradictory, right? So for me... Like I said, I got 97% uh, 
uh, Iranian from, you know, Iran. And then when I took this, and that was from uh, 23andMe, and when I took this DNA land one, um, it came back um, that, you know, I was 21% uh, Ashkenazi, right? So, I mean, if you think about the percentage of that, right, like that's basically saying that one of my grandparents was full-blooded Ashkenazi uh, person from like you know Eastern European yeah. uh, from Eastern Europe so um, you know this was something that was kind of surprising to me because I'm like well I've met most of my grandparents right so yeah. like all of them actually um, but uh, how does this work and so like actually I just went in and um, I mean personally I would I would love some some diversity in my uh, sample size yeah we're my, both my, kind my, of boring yeah <laughs> and um, <laughs> so I actually went online and tried to check and um, it's actually some of the things that other people have reported is that in certain populations, just based on the particular algorithm that they use, um, there's an overrepresentation of um, Ashkenazi percentage in uh, in certain populations. So I mean, like, so then this this calls into question of okay, what exactly are these methods? Um, if you can get two wildly different um, percentage breakdowns by two different types of um, you know projects uh, what can we make out of this like are we did it, if anything uh, are we um, did we get any of the answers that we wanted to get from taking these these tests I don't know I don't know and the worst thing is you see how how it can be misused so clearly I was on a Facebook group for some um, some like Armenian historic family or something that has modern descendants and the admin had posted like some genetic, some paper they saw, or some combination of that and their their DNA tests, claiming that a certain haplogroup, which is like a genetic population, like sharing a, a certain gene, is like the Armenian gene, which is so insanely, uh, I don't even know, like old timey scientific racism, and so just divorce from the reality of what we consider, you know, cultural identity, which, you know, it's, it's whatever you consider it, uh, language, this thing, uh, lived experience, that it's, like, scary, you know? It really is scary that this has been revived in our culture. I don't know. On the one hand, I'm kind of glad I did it, and it was a little bit interesting, and, you know, seeing my relatives, seeing that I have genetic relatives in other countries, blah, blah. But on the other hand... I think we kind of brought the genie out of the bottle again. <laughs> to, to, yeah. to use, a I mean, I mean, this is this is a really good point because I think about um, you know this is these companies have been around for a while, right? And like just to, just to say, like this is not like let's say the Human Genome Project where like <laughs> they're like sitting there and mapping out like your entire genome for like uh, whatever. Like these people are they're making money, right? Like uh, this is a business. Um, which is, you know, not not a surprise, and like especially if you ask people, like, okay, what are they doing with this data, right? Like, um, you hear all these stories about, for example, GED match, right? GED match um, <laughs> is one of the uh, wait. Can you was kind of yeah? Explain what happened because this freaked me out. Yeah, so I mean, and, and you know, as it should, right? Because this is something that like uh, is pretty like clearly obvious in the day and age in which we live with biopolitics and, and this type of stuff. But basically, GED match um, has been uh, used by law enforcement to basically um, survey, surveil, conduct surveillance, and uh, find uh, people uh, f uh, and charge them for crimes this way. 
right? So, like, I mean, that's another thing to do is like, well, what are these private companies doing with this material? Another thing to consider is um, pharmaceutical companies are very interested in this information, right? Um, and so you have like 23andMe and you know Ancestry.com coming out with you know uh, updated user agreements saying that they wouldn't give out their information. But I mean, this is something that um, you know in in the world that we live in, like um, where um, you know data is becoming the ultimate tool for uh, generating revenue. What's more valuable than your genetic data, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know. It's something that um, I, mean, uh, I should have. Should have thought about more actually before yeah, I sent it I, in. But and you told me about that that G that was a GED match. Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd actually I'd also put my data on that one too. And as soon as he told me, I went and deleted it. And it's actually funny because <laughs> the owners, at least them, when they found out about the police using the database, they made it easy to delete your data. You just log mm-hmm. in, and now it's the first question it asks. It's like, do you want to delete your data? Which I did, you know, because I don't want to live in this weird Terminator Two world, you know. Um, <coughs> Yeah, pretty creepy. So, yeah, lessons to our viewers, we or listeners, we did it so you didn't have to do it. Um, we had a meaningless genetic test and learned a very limited amount of stuff about us and um, possibly contributed to the revival of global uh, racial genetics. I mean, to be fair, it was already there. That's we true. Didn't. That's true. <laughs> we put too much on ourselves. Yeah. Okay, nice. Um, so, I've got an idea. Um, yeah, you know, th- one of my favorite interviews that um, I want to see if maybe we can play a little bit of. If not, we'll edit this part out. Um, I really liked the the interview with Mikia. Oh, podcast. that was a fun one to that do. That was really um, interesting. Um, yeah. So for for those of you who don't know, uh, Mikia Koyagi, um, he's actually now a professor at UT Austin. Um, he was at NYU for several years, um, but uh, his research is on um, the construction of the Trans-Iranian Railroad um, in the 1930s, um, which is actually quite a fascinating concept, right? Because I'm, I'm sure Mickey, uh, you'll hear Mickey explain it a little bit more, but this is actually, in terms of a railroad construction, pretty late to the game in terms of um, transportation infrastructure in the Middle East. And there's a there's a number of reasons for that. Yeah, and, I, it's funny because uh, I was reading them. that Abbas Amonat book that just came out, which will I should probably talk about for a whole episode. You know, modern history <laughs> of Iran and trains comes up a lot. You know, so I actually went back and re-listened to the Mikia thing. So I was thinking, you know, we can play a little clip of just some of some really interesting piece of his interview. Uh, you know, just really short. What do you think? Good idea. I think it's a great idea. Okay, Go for it. Nice. Uh, the Trans-Iranian Railway was the first extensive railway that was built in Iran to connect the new port of bandar shah uh, on the Caspian Sea with another new port uh, called bandar shahpur on the Persian Gulf. So it was a railway to connect northern Iran with southern Iran via Tehran, the capital. And uh, there are two unusual characteristics about the Trans-Iranian Railway project. One is its late timing. The railway was built between 1927 and 1938. And 1938, is, uh, it's pretty late for railway construction uh, compared to places like uh, India and Egypt, which had uh, railroad systems in the 1850s. 
So it's almost uh, 80 years after these places, right? And this belated arrival of railway technology uh, impacted various aspects of how uh, the railway and a broad segment of Iranian society interacted. And another unusual thing about the Trans-Iranian Railway is that unlike many other railroads in Asia and Africa, the Trans-Iranian Railway was built by the centralizing Pahlavi state. Uh, it was partially funded by the hefty taxes on tea and sugar. So the Pahlavi state initially had a contract with a German-American consortium to build the railroad, and then it canceled the contract with the German-American consortium, and eventually they built the railroad under a su the supervision of a Danish consortium called Kampsax, uh, which had experience with railway projects in places like Turkey. So these are the two unusual features of the Trans-Iranian Railway that uh, I'm working on. Hmm. That's fascinating. And especially this part where you talk about um, its, its relative lateness in comparison to uh, neighboring regions uh, such as India and Egypt and Iraq, for example. Um, so I'm just curious. Okay, so we're back with our last segment. Uh, hope you all enjoyed that little clip uh, of the interview with Mikia. Um, basically, we wanted to take uh, a little moment of this show and just end it. I hope this will be a regular feature with a little music spotlight. What do you think, Rustin? I'm into it. Okay. We should so, do more of that. Yeah, let's do it. So let's, um, we just wanted to give uh, some time and also a little shout out to Byzantine Time Machine. You might think you've never heard of them, but really they were the music for our Kickstarter video. They graciously donated their track to us. And um, there's another one of their tracks on the mixtape that went to certain levels of, of people who donated. Um, I'll, give a quick, I'll give a quick intro as to who they are. They're based in... Chicago, I'm pretty sure, and they basically take, you know, sort of this maqam, modal style of um, music, which again, what do you call it? Is it, uh, I don't know, do you want to call it Islamic? Do you want to call it Middle Eastern? Anyways, maqam music is what I like to call it most accurate, and they sort of mix it with, with this, like, kind of dub influences, and, you know, dub is that sort of music based with the origins in Jamaica where you use the studio production gear as an instrument. So like your echo and your delay and your reverb is like part of what makes the song the song. And anyways, they do it in not just a really cool way, but they I feel like they don't overdo the fusion part where there's all of a sudden there's like a weird like rock guitar going over your oud or whatever. So I just, you know, I wanted to close this out with this song, Trapped in the Sultan's Palace. It's, it's just amazing. And it really brings you a kind of a new sound, but it sort of stays true to what makes this kind of music, you know, with oud and clarinet and tombak and all this stuff, like, that kind of still makes it sound the way that I think uh, is, like, pleasing to the ear. Um, yeah, and I think that we'll just let that play us out. What do you think, Rustin? Let's do it. Let's listen to it, man. Okay, so thank you all for listening. Um, we appreciate you. Uh, Russell, yeah, yeah, check back. Uh, check back next week. Uh, hopefully, we have a new uh, 
uh, a new episode for you. And you know what? Um, why don't you, um, uh, if you're if you're interested, feel free to send us a message on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, what you'd like to hear, what you'd like uh, um, this show to be about, as we're kind of figuring out the early stages of this uh, podcast. So we'd love to hear from you. Any questions, any suggestions, just uh, sh- uh, shoot it our way. That's a great idea. Okay, perfect. Thank you for listening. See ya. Bye-bye.